Hello, everyone. Welcome to Baiguan Radio, a podcast series affiliated with Baiguan News Center. My name is Mu Chen, co-editor of Baiguan. Our mission is always providing the most relevant and the most unbiased facts and views about China. Through Baiguan Radio, we'll invite people from all walks of life to give you a fresh idea of how real people and business on the ground are. In this episode, we're going to talk about policy stimulus with Robert, and more discussion on lower tier city with Amber. Today, Robert and I are in Beijing attending Monsanto's tech conferences. There are、uh, about a few hundred investors around the world attending the meeting with companies. We have met、uh, about two dozen investors. One of the topic they are asking about is policy stimulus. In the last few months, you know, everyone is asking about policy stimulus. The market's expectation on the stimulus is definitely not aligned with what the government is rolling out. However, a few days ago, on August twenty-eight, the CSRC. Just rolled out a stream of policy that seems to be significant. That includes cuts on trading stamp tax. It was actually rolled out once, 16 years, and there was a restriction on sell down by controlling shareholders. Also, a restriction on new IPO offerings. These actually are treated as material policy. But when we look at how the market reacted on Monday, price of Asia stock market jumped five percent, but then quickly declined to one percent. It seems like investor and the market is not completely buying to the power of the policy. We want to talk more about it. It's a complicated, important discussion. So, Robert, what's the significance of these policies? Which part do you think is the most significant part? It's a whole bundle of policy, and the different pieces of that policy bundle carries different significance. On the surface of it, it's the stamp duty tax that's where most people pay attention to, because it's the also the simplest one, and it does carry a lot of historical connotations. Last time they cut this down was around the 07-08 period, and it did give quite a boost to the market prices at the time. So, with that memories in mind, a lot of people pay attention to this part, and a lot of people are asking over and over again, when the, will the government reset and decrease the stamp duty tax? But with that said, stamp duty tax in China is already very very low. It was only 0.08 percent of the、mm-hmm. trade, both ways included, before they slash it down again this time. So, for example, if you're just trading 100,000 yuan doing that trade, you only pay you know 80 yuan for tax, which is like almost nothing. So, by cutting down on that, it carries way more symbolic value than actual value. Unless if you are more of a quantitative high-frequency trading fund,、yeah. apart from those guys, if you're just a retail investor, if you are typical fundamental investors or a corporate, this won't affect much of your decisions anyway. So I do not think that's actually the most significant piece. Although it's the instant and also the headline-grabbing piece of those policy bundle. Among the several policies they introduced last weekend, there are actually very significant and impactful. Policies, changes. I think the most important thing is the this specific restriction on controlling shareholder or largest shareholder sell down.、Mm-hmm. The way they put this is, in fact, quite unique. This is the first time ever that, in China, for a controlling shareholder to sell down shares, you have to first be able to not only be profitable but also distribute part of your profit to your shareholders by way of dividends. So if you don't do that, if you don't make money for your shareholders, then you have no rights to sell down shares. 
So this is the first time they tie shareholder returns to the controlling shareholders' interests.、Mm-hmm. And why is that significant? That's because Chinese stock markets was and is a very young capital market.、Mm-hmm. They only started this whole thing in the beginning of the、uh, last decade of last century. So it's barely over thirty years old. Imagine you put the whole economy of a country onto a capital market. That market will serve mostly one purpose, which is to do fundraising for the corporates, for the companies, the listed companies, to do fundraising for these companies and fundraising for their shareholders. So essentially, for the last few decades, the capital markets are a kind of fundraising machine for the fundraisers,、mm-hmm. and usually at the expense of investors. So someone did a statistics before, just to look at each year how much of the cash that are being distributed to the shareholders through dividend, through share repurchases, and how much of the cash are kind of sucked by the markets from IPOs, from sell down, and etc. Yeah, I remember that statistics. I think that the outflow to the corporate executive or the founder is actually larger than the、yeah. money that being that's being raised、yeah. by the capital market or by the Asian market. Yes, it has been. Like that consistently for many years, and that is one of the big problems for the investors in China's onshore capital markets. There's just endless supply of more and more shares.、Um, there's limited、uh, supply of cash, new cash inflow、uh, to the market. This piece of the regulation is served to address this problem. Finally, is it a good policy from a free market perspective? It's a little bit too much intervention. In a mature capital market, you cannot imagine the government creating this kind of restriction on shareholder sell-down. But again, Chinese capital market is not mature. It is within this immature context they have to find ways to address problems of the time. So they introduce this piece. And why doesn't the market respond more cheerfully to these kind of reforms? Well, as I said, the stamp duty tax is insignificant, but it's short-term. So you do see this short-term excitement. In the at least in the first few minutes when the market opened this week, yeah. But the more significant part, for example, the shareholder sell-down part, this is more long-term, more structural, and it does take long-term forces, long-term developments for the consequence of this kind of policy to really materialize. People have to be patient to see how this kind of policy can create for the markets. It's sort of creative that you can implement a policy to require the. Company management or the the major shareholder, founding shareholder, to make profit for the rest of the shareholders before they can cash out. That definitely sounds unique in some、yeah. sense, right? That you're re- implementing some sort of requirement, and I can understand it will take time for implementing it. Actually, the majority shareholder can have other ways to cash out、yeah. their share still, given even given the new policies. There will be many creative ways. Yeah, they can. The way I can think of it is one is to pledge. Their shares to、yeah. to have a loan、yeah. about it. The other thing that we talk about is that we see the government rolling out stimulus slowly, but when we compare that to OA09, it was more direct. Yeah, OA09, the government say they are going to roll out a four trillion RMB stimulus. There's a specific number. There's a material policy that people can refer to,、mm-hmm. so it's easier to understand.、Mm-hmm. Why is the government not doing it this time? Back then, we are really at a another level of development for China, right? Two thousand and eight. That's even pre 
high-speed railway networks. Yeah, there is a lot of potential for urbanization. There's a lot of potential for big infrastructure projects. So the reason that they were able to respond in such a big way at the time was really there was enough demand to soak up all these stimulus. We are now in a different period. The real estate problem, they were self-induced problem, but also the government realized, especially the central government realized, it, it's just the time is over for the kind of high-speed growth we have been used to a few decades or a few years ago. So there's definitely limits for what government can do. I think another reason is that China's economy has grown so much since 08-09. Back then in 08, the GDP of China is around 31. A trillion RMB, four trillion out of forty thirty-one trillion is like twelve percent, thirteen percent of uh, GDP. But for twenty twenty-two, the China's GDP has grown to over hundred twenty trillion RMB. So if the government put in a few trillion dollar RMB as stimulus, actually it may not work. Yeah. And secondly, is that the mechanism for a direct stimulus it takes longer to be effective, right. given the size of the economy, the complexity of the economy. So that's another reason, right? right. That, that uh, a more sophisticated stimulus policy and plan and framework need to be structured compared right. to 08-09. Right. The other thing that I got asked a lot by our readers is, I think, visibility into the policy stimulus. It echoes what you talked about in the last episode on government's transparency. So from our readers' point of view, as investors, as business people, they are doing business planning. They always want to see some predictability in the economy or in how policy works. I think our readers actually might have a hard time understanding or getting visibility into how would the policy stimulus be rolled out for the next few months or for the next couple of years. Do you think there's a way to get some understanding on it? Uh, yeah, I definitely do. So, although Chinese political system is quite different from the Western ones, uh, there are some essentially similar structures underneath. For example, Officially, we do not have people like lobbyists, but that doesn't mean people who act as lobbyists don't exist. What I mean is there are decision makers and there are general public, but in between, there are also areas or people who are constantly making advices to the government, mostly academics, think tank people, and also some of the professional political consultants, advisors from the consultant conference. There are these non-state actors but who are also talking at the same time with the general public, at the same time talking with the government decision makers, government agencies. I just advise people to pay more attention to many of these academics. Usually when they talk about some things, they will share some of their findings and their views, and there will be some public discussion of a certain topic and certain debates, and it could be reflective of the debates within the government system. And also especially pay attention to the advisors or academics that the highest layer of government or party have been talking with recently. Actually, a lot of these are public. There are always study sessions, Politburo meetings involving some of the academics. So pay attention to this kind of activities of high-ranking officials and also to the people who are interacting with them will be quite beneficial for understanding these policy changes. Yeah, that's one of the ways I learned to see visibility into the central government's policy-making processes, right? Or they are thinking around it. We can post it on the show notes, some of the names that we saw publicly that's been announced to be advisor or to be the invitees to state council's economic studying sessions. 
when you look at that, you can see that some of them are talking about industrial policies. Some of them are talking about internal migration policies, the hukou policies. Some of them are talking about global international finance. When we look at you know, their viewpoints, when we look at their research paper, some of them are publicly available. Uh, we can see what they would provide to the central government. And when we look at the area they're studying, uh, we can also see what the central government is focusing on in the recent months or recent years. Yeah. We have talked about the stimulus policies, which focus on the macroeconomics. Let's switch gear to look at what's going on on the ground at the micro level. We have published a very interesting article on a small town called Gaoyou in Jiangsu province in China, with 700,000 populations. I'd like to talk more about this type of society and economy in China, which is rarely seen by the outside world. After I read the article, I just learned about Gaoyou, but Gaoyou is actually quite representative of China. This kind of lower tier city will be the focus of China's economic developments for the next few years. At least that's our expectation. Amber, what do you think are the, the other lower tier cities that are representative of China? I guess the first city that came to my mind is Leshan, which is a low tier third or fourth tier city located about an hour away from Chengdu, Sichuan province. One of the most favorite thing I know of uh-huh. Lushan is the big Buddha, Lushan right. Dafo. Right. Yeah, the giant Buddha. The giant Buddha is quite spectacular because it's literally carved out the stones from the mountain, so it's entirely naturally made. It's amazing craftsmanship. Yeah, that's my impression about Lushan. I'm guessing that's many people's impression about Lushan as well. But when we look at a city in China, we always fall into this generic imagination, and that's why we want to talk more about it. Because when I look into the GDP and economy of Lushan, I was amazed. They had a GDP of 230 billion last year. Uh, they had a faster growth rate than the nation. So, what's special about this city? The unique feature is that the city has a lot of the cultural heritage. In addition to the natural assets such as like the mountains and the rivers, the long mm. rivers, it actually has a deep cultural heritage. For instance, if you've heard about Guo Moruo, which is a mm. famous Chinese poet. He was born and raised in Leshan, so a lot of people in Leshan they actually have this appreciation for the history, for the culture. That made it very unique to develop the tourism industry because people wanted to come down to see a unique type of culture that they cannot see in the big cities. My grandparents live in Leshan, so I pretty much visit them every year, multiple times. Several years ago, when I went to Leshan, it's pretty much like a day trip. So you went there, bought the tickets, went to see the Buddha, and you're pretty much done.、Mm-hmm. But over the years, you actually see a variety of tourism point of interest developed over the years. The catering, the restaurant scene is booming. You pretty much have hundreds of different street foods available if you visit Leshan. A lot of people actually went to Leshan to see the museum, which presents the history and connections of Leshan to Buddhism. So it's not just a giant Buddha. The city itself actually has a deeper connection to. I've seen a lot of people, including foreigners. I've seen foreigners even during the COVID period、mm. uh, in 2021. They went to Leshan and they took a longer trips. It's no longer a one-day round trip from Chengdu anymore. Many people actually. Wanting to take a few more days in Leshan and just enjoy the relaxed, slow lifestyle, play mahjong, have tea. So it's actually a quite lively scene that's being developed over the years.、Mm-hmm. But how does it represent other towns or cities in、mm-hmm. China? So this is very representative of a lot of the cities in China, where you don't see manufacturing, you don't see the heavy industrial factories. That's not the main driver of the economy. The city itself is driven by the tourism industry. You actually rarely see other industries such as、uh, manufacturing, as what you would see in Gaoyou. The city is actually purely built on its cultural and natural heritage. It actually turned into、uh, a pretty international tourism city. They built museums, they've built homes,、uh, 
of the famous people and they've designed merchandise that's representative of the local cultures. Basically, you see a lot of people who take the asset, the cultural heritage of their hometown and turn it into million dollar business. I think what outside world means sometimes is that in China, right, not only do we have the tier one cities that are globally known, we also have smaller city that are managed by a team of government officials. They actually is a microchasm. They have their own KPIs. The mayors have the KPI of growing the GDP, have to grow the average income per person, also have to stabilize the society. So they have their own task locally mm -hmm. and surrounding their local governments would focus on that those kpis and they have to figure out a way to construct an industry right. one keyword that you mentioned is industry it's not just a tourism spot right. or a city that's grown organically from bottom up it's been meticulously designed mm -hmm. by the local government i'm sure if you go back and look at the city reports or the government reports by the city leaderships they will publicize policies that drive mm -hmm. the industrialization or the growth of the tourism industry mm -hmm. in Lusai. Right? Yeah, it's always been one of the most important strategies by the local government to develop the tourism industry. It's not just building several points of interest, it's a strategy to develop the entire tourism industry and all the surrounding services around that. Yeah, because we know that it's a promotion system. Unlike some of the system in other countries, mm -hmm. there's clear ladder mm -hmm. within the government system. If you do well as a town leader, you might get promoted to be a city leader. Mm -hmm. And if you do well as a city leader, you might get promoted to a provincial leader. So leaders at each level would you know, focus on getting promoted right? yeah. if they're ambitious exactly. and they're driven. Right? But that's the leadership part. When we look at the city such as Lusan, right, the people also matter right, from what you say. But many lower-tier cities like Lusan, a few years ago, are seeing a hollowing of their population. Mm -hmm. Many of the young people are out, only the older people and the kids are in the hometown. How are they tackling that challenge? How can they attract young people mm -hmm. back to their hometown? Mm -hmm. I'm actually seeing some trends that is, there's a you know, reverse migration, but I'm not sure if that's a overall trend or just like anecdotal cases. Well, I think that is a problem. And let's just take Lezhen as an example. I do see young people flowing out of the city, even up until this point. I still see a net outflow of the young people that prefer to go to cities like Chengdu being one of the most popular destinations for the young from Lezhen and the suburban area around Lezhen. There are two very important reasons that contribute to this phenomenon. One being that even though the infrastructure has been developed, the city is literally brand new. Mm. However, you see a lot of the local residents, they still have a quote-unquote outdated mindset. Mm. I have a very personal story on that. So my grandpa actually passed away after COVID early this year. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. He actually refused to go to the hospital. That's not uncommon among the local residents who are mainly the elderly uh, folks. They're scared of the, the hospitals and they think they just overcharge you. However, their kids, their kids actually have very different thoughts. Being filial to your parents is such an important thing in Chinese culture, right? So usually kids would put their parents to the hospital mm. before they pass away because otherwise their neighbors and relatives are just going to judge you saying things like, oh, you're not making everything you can to save your parents. You should be putting your parents into the ICU. However, that ignore the fact that elderly people, they may just want to pass away peacefully with a family at home. So that is a sharp contract suggesting that a lot of the local residents still have this quote-unquote outdated kind of mindset. They have a very 
traditional way of looking at the relationship to their relative, to the society, mm-hmm. to the life and death. And that's just one of the examples. You have many other examples that pretty much explain the same concept here. Such mindset may not fit the ideas of what would be a nice place to live for many young people. So that's definitely one of the reasons they want to live in a city that is modern, not just with the modern infrastructure, but also with the modern ideas. They want to have a broader vision of the world. They want to receive the new way of living their life. Secondly, I think another problem is the healthcare and the quality of the public services. Mm-hmm. I think it's natural for young people to want to go to a metropolitan area to seek you know, better job opportunities and education. That's super normal, not just in China. But again, when they make enough money and they want to return to their hometown, one of the reasons that, that, that always kind of push them away from their hometown is things like healthcare or the quality of the services. My grandma still lives in Lushan. Mm-hmm. We actually checked out a few nursery homes for her. But I would say even though the nursery homes are like brand new and it's all nicely done, it's clean, but the quality of the service is nothing compared to what you get in the first year or uh, the new first year cities. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much like a, you pay the money and the social workers will cook you the meals and they'll give you a shelter and please enjoy the rest of your life sort of vibe. So nobody wants to live in that kind of environment, right? You don't feel homey, it's not the same quality of the service you would receive in new first year cities. So I definitely see that as another reason why a lot of the young people are flowing out of the city. Like even if they've made enough money, they don't want to come back mm-hmm. simply because they need better options of the healthcare or other uh, public services. Actually, that's contrary to what we're seeing in other countries in the U.S. We both went to UVA. Mm-hmm. UVA is a rural well, area. It's a nice town. It's a small town, but you have one of the top hospitals yes. in the town mm-hmm. for a population of uh, mm-hmm. tens of thousands of people. Mm-hmm. And you have one of the best college in the town, one of the, some of the best high school in the States mm-hmm. in a small town. That's not imaginable in China. I think that also is because of how modernization is being conducted in China. In the beginning, it would be more efficient to have a few core city and concentrate all the resources in it right. because of efficiency reason. But then because of that strategy, all the resources are being concentrated in those cities. Uh, the rural areas have less high quality services. Mm-hmm which is different from how the U.S. was developed or how the U.S. was modernized. So that's hugely different. But that's not the other story, because the immigration happens a decade or two decades ago. After that, the hometown and the people that left the hometown have their own development in parallel. The hometown has been catching up with higher tier city, and the people that left are also growing a career and business. Meanwhile, their connections has not been cut. So this connection has evolved into something that helped grow the hometown itself. So did you see that in Lushan? Sure. It's natural that people want to migrate to different cities or even different countries who doesn't want to see a bigger world. But the most fascinating thing is that a lot of the people who are born and raised in low-tier cities like Lushan, for instance, they take their heritage, all the influences they've received as they grow up, they take the cultural heritage and they turn that into a million billion dollar business. So for instance, in Lushan, you actually see a lot of successful entrepreneurs and businessmen who were born and raised in Lushan. Let me just give you a quick example. There is a very famous nationwide chain store. It's called, their signature dish is this spicy braised chicken. Oh, I can eat spicy food. <laughs> it's actually a gourmet dish if you like spicy food. Mm. By the way, it's also a very signature dish in the Sichuan, Sichuan province. So it's pretty much chicken and spicy oil and they're putting different ingredients and fragrances. It's a very yummy dish. Lian is actually a public traded company. It's traded on Shanghai Exchange. And I looked at their financial scene in 2022. I believe they sold over a billion of revenue just by selling this braised spicy chicken dishes. 
it's quite amazing. The founder, they came from Lushan and they took their hometown recipe and they pretty much just standardized the making process and they opened the stores nationwide. The interesting thing is I have not seen any single Zian store in Lushan where it's located because <laughs> I've heard local people complaining about the taste being inauthentic. Nevertheless, that dish is very well received mm -hmm. in China nationwide. So you actually see a lot of examples like that. A lot of the successful founders and CEOs and business executives are born and raised in those low-tier cities and they took the cultural heritage they've learned in their hometown as they grow up and they successfully developed the business out of that. And more importantly, these founders and business executives, they genuinely know what people want in mm -hmm. those low-tier cities. They know what's the actual demands. They understand the reality. So they make products that is tailored to, you know, the billion of people living in the low-tier cities. For instance, JD.com, mm -hmm. that's one of the largest e-commerce platform in China. The founder, Liu Changdong, he was born and raised in a low-tier city, Suqian, in mm -hmm. South province. So my point is, even though people may migrate to different cities, they may find different dreams that they want to pursue, but many people, they carry the cultural heritage that they've learned as they grow up in their hometown. Yeah. The other thing you mentioned, they mm -hmm. not only are carrying the heritage from the hometown, you know, Ziyan is branded around the chicken in Lushan, right? I'm sure they are connected in terms of business to Lushan. When you mentioned JD, I can remember is that you know, Liu Changdong actually set up call centers in yeah. his hometown. What's interesting is that the local officials are leveraging these cultural heritage mm -hmm. connections with the businessmen mm -hmm. uh, that migrated out of from the lower tier city mm -hmm. and they actually co-built some of the local business yeah. together. So that actually set up a connection between the business leader that have been, become successful but not in the hometown and the hometown itself. Mm -hmm. I want to point out that the attachment in the hometown emotionally is actually of weight for many Chinese people, yeah, right? Yeah, that's they, a very deep part of our culture. So the lower tier city can use that to grow their local business. Mm -hmm. The other thing you, you point out is that because this is businessmen grew up in the lower tier city, they actually know what the majority of the Chinese people like. Right? One thing that I find lacking myself when I'm thinking of running mass consumer market or mass consumer business in China is that even though I came from Chaozhou, which is like a fifth, fourth tier city. Oh, it's also fourth tier city? Yeah. <laughs> I have been spent, I've spent so many years outside of China. Mm -hmm. I'm not as connected to the lower tier city mm -hmm. people. So I'm not that confident in terms of launching some mass consumer product mm -hmm. that's targeting the 80 or 90% of Chinese right, outside of the right. tier one cities. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. Uh, a lot of the investors actually mm -hmm. miss the early opportunity of investing in companies like Pinduoduo or Kuaishou, whose customer base is mainly people living in the low tier cities yeah. because there's a sharp contrast in the sense that a lot of the investors they're super intellectual they live in the first tier cities and they work in this glamorous office building so they may not actually get a chance to see the actual demands and what people want as you said 90 percent of the chinese people they may not have visibility to their true demands mm -hmm. so when they looked at companies like kuaishou they saw content that is super grassroots mm -hmm. it may not be what those investors find interesting but it truly echoes with the 90 percent 90 80 percent of the people living in the low tier cities but again with the recent change in the bigger economic environment, uh, the question is, well, on one hand, you're seeing Lushan, cities like Lushan growing rapidly, modernizing rapidly. On the other hand, you're seeing that the software, quote-unquote software of the city have yet to catch up with the hardware. You're seeing the service and the healthcare and other infrastructures, soft infrastructure lagging from the higher tier cities. Mm -hmm. When we combine these two together, what should we think of 
this lower tier city because I think they are the focus of economic development for China in the next couple of years or in the in the mid mid term. First of all, it's a process. It's not going to be a one stop solution for all of the problems we've mentioned, but. After all, I think low-tier cities still have huge potentials as the reverse urbanization trends develop. Actually, in recent years, you already see many Chinese people living in the big cities saying things like, oh, I just want to settle down in a rural area or maybe by the seashores after all the hassles they've experienced in the metropolitan area. I do see that trend, like my mom wanted to go back to Sichuan where she was born. Mm. But when people talk about relocating to a rural or suburban area, I believe they're looking for places that is peaceful and better come with unique cultures and decent public facilities, especially mm. the healthcare, and also the convenience and transportations. So I think the low-tier cities already has the edge in the sense that they have the unique cultures, they have the peaceful environments, they have no traffic jams, that's already an edge. And especially for people living in the big cities, they've seen so many similar things across all the first-year and new first-year cities. Now they actually prefer want to see something different, maybe a different landscape, maybe a different culture, maybe a different traditions, maybe a different ethnic groups. They want to experience different things. So on that end, I think the cultural heritage is already a huge edge to those low-tier cities. However, I think over the next 10 years, decades, I think the quality of the service will still become the key difference between those low-tier cities versus the metropolitan areas because nobody wants to live in a brand new house with terrible management. I see that as a process. You already see a lot of, especially affluent people, wanting mm -hmm. to not just take a vacation, they actually want to settle down in the suburban areas. Goods and services are going to flow to those peoples eventually. So I do see huge opportunities here, but it will just be a process. And yeah, I think it's a common theme that we are going through a unprecedented changes, mm -hmm. right? Not just the geopolitics, but also China's economic yeah. structure. And like you said, the equalizing of quality of services in lower tier city is spinning up mm -hmm. because of the growth of digital economy. One thing that I can recall is the mm -hmm. new hotel chain from Huazhou. Uh, I mean, even for those hotels in lower tier city, they have robots. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, telemedicine and remote teaching, all these technology have matured. So they will be able to provide high quality healthcare services mm -hmm. via you know, telemedicines and training can be conducted online remotely to the lower tier city. The singularity points that have been reached that on the supply side quality of service is growing rapidly. On the other hand, now we have one more factor, which is the demand sites. Mm -hmm. The people in the modern cities are having pressure surviving or building routes in the higher tier city. Mm -hmm. So they have to realistically consider yeah. relocating back to their hometown. With that, we would be seeing some sort of reverse urbanization or some sort of revival of the lower tier city mm. in China's own characteristics. Right. I am not expecting a Charlottesville types of <laughs> township, but definitely there will be some sort of unique modernized township yeah. in China. I think that's, that will be really cool. Each city should have its personality and local people should feel proud of their culture, yeah. not just for the economy, but also for the, the local residents themselves too. And definitely we should share more to our readers about it if we get a chance to visit the other side.